Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. I'm your host, Dara Tarkowski. And today on the show, we have John Wall, partner of Trust Insights. Uh, Can't wait to hear more about what Trust does. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, just want to do a quick shout out to today's sponsor, BAI. For those of you unfamiliar, BAI is one of the financial services industry's leaders in both training and education. For more information about offerings available, visit BAI.org. And thank you again for making today's episode possible. So today we are talking about AI, marketing. Is it a treasure trove or a regulatory nightmare? Maybe it's a little bit of both. But here to dissect that with us is John Wall of Trust Insights, who's responsible for managing all aspects of sales and customer success. Trust Insights was founded in 2017 with a simple mission. They help marketers solve and achieve issues with collecting data and measuring their digital marketing efforts so that they can make better decisions with data and exceed their goals with more automation, fewer efforts, fewer errors rather, and deeper insights. Welcome to the show, John. Oh, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So, John, how long have you been with Trust Insights? Um, just about a year after the foundation of it. Um, I'd been working with Christopher Penn uh, for a number of years. We actually did the Marketing Over Coffee podcast that's been running for 15 years now. And um, he, we actually found out that the podcast was driving so much business for Trust Insights that it made sense just to cross over and start working with them full time. So that was about three years ago for me. And uh, yeah, it's been a blast to kind of have our own thing and get out of the regular uh, corporate grind. Podcasts do do a very good job at driving business. That may or may not be the reason that I have a podcast myself, but <laughs> I but I see this. So I'm doing good, right? Like this is good marketing. This is huge marketing. Yeah, it's a, to have branded content and to set up a relationship where somebody is willing to listen to you for 30, 35 minutes talk about your topic. There's just there's no substitute for that anywhere. Uh, well, John, we are starting this podcast off on a great foot because now I have all the warm fuzzies uh, <sighs> about tech on reg. Um, so we've won, right? Like we, we've, we've already won. But for those of my listeners, so we've got a lot of listeners who are entrepreneurs, who run businesses, a uh, lot, of, lot of companies, right? And the name of the game is marketing, business development, driving sales, driving customers, and customer acquisition, particularly in, you know, in today's day and age, like that is the lifeblood of any organization. So talk to me about the problem that Trust Insights identified and what Trust Insights does to help solve problems for, for these businesses. Yeah, sure. The The idea for the company spun out of doing analytics on public relations, on PR. Um, Christopher Penn and Katie Robert were both at Shift Communications, and they were analyzing data sets of advertising and other PR activities. 
And it reached a point where a bunch of their clients were like, yeah, this PR stuff is great, but really we would like to get this analytics for all of our marketing activities across the board. And so uh, a few things went down, the company was acquired and that kind of hit the point where Chris and Katie decided to spin off and start their own agency where they could do these types of analytics across the board for all marketing activities. And, uh, and so it falls into three big buckets for us, really. People want attribution. You know, they want to know which marketing programs are working and actually bringing in the business. Um, better organizations that have data want predictive analytics. They want to be able to look forward and take advantage of data to figure out what's coming next and what they should be doing. And then, of course, the third one is no matter who we talk to, you know, when we get in there, the data is a huge mess and data needs to be cleaned up and you need all kinds of work to get it in order and get everything integrated. So that's the third part of the business for us. Very cool. All right. So how, in your opinion, does AI, artificial intelligence, actually give marketers a competitive advantage? Yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, AI has really kind of been the new snake oil. I mean, you know, the term artificial intelligence has been around since the late fifties. Um, but snake marketing- oil, snake oil is not a great phrase, John. No, that's, it's that's not. A, it's that's not charged. That's a charged phrase. (laughs) Well, of course, I'm not going to come on and just talk boring stuff. I mean, we're here to take a bold stance. Um, You know, the majority of stuff that we see providing value is machine learning. So, and we consider that to be a branch of artificial intelligence. And the idea is not, you know, to make a fully functional, aware machine that's going to start doing the VP of marketing's job tomorrow. But the idea is to take (laughs) the this huge amount of computational power that's now available to the masses and put it to work doing things that were just impossible. So a great example you know, from the PR side is to be able to read 36,000 articles that were published over the last month and find out what the four biggest topics are and understand what the sentiment of, you know, is, is most of it positive or is most of it negative. And now, you know, because it's automated, there's a margin of error where the computer can't understand sarcasm and, and certain kind of things, but you are able to just churn through more data than you ever have been able to before. And again, you can take advantage of it. You can try and get ahead of these trends, or you can mine in to find small pockets of either people that need certain products or you know have certain problems to solve. And you, you know, you the ability to get to that is something that's just happened in the past ten years or so because computational power is so much cheaper than it's ever been. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion amongst, I think, the actual data scientists and academics who are building a lot of these artificial intelligence applications, uh, machine learning included. And there's, I think, a spirited debate regarding the ethics of AI and how AI should be, ought to be, how is it ethically being used, particularly in in the field of marketing? Are you sort of familiar with some of those debates? You know, privacy is is right at the heart of a lot of that. You know, people being able to find out things about people and, uh, you know, target them with certain kinds of offers and, you know, which most people would consider unethical. Um, yeah, there's a... And rightfully so. There's a lot of concern about what kind of marketing can be done and how it should be done. So yeah, we struggle with that stuff on a regular basis. It's really a a question of what kind of data sets do you want to use? What kind of actions are you going to take? And ultimately, it's, you know, having somebody that talks to you about trust and doing the right thing. You know, are you in the long run going to be able to survive um, as opposed to taking shortcuts to try and grow the business quickly that could come back and, you know, really bite you hard in the long run? 
Well, it probably doesn't help that at least in the United States, we've just got a very fragmented type of regulatory structure and there's not one clear set of prescriptive rules around how to use AI, period, but specifically how to use AI with regards to marketing, right? Like we've got all of these different laws and different rules about how you communicate with consumers on the telephone or via text message or spamming and, you know, and then we've got a, you know, this new patchwork of state level privacy regulations because as anyone who's ever listened to my show before knows, there is no federal privacy legislation. Um, how do you guys grapple with those issues? Yeah, the, you know, the short answer is we always take the mom test, right? It's when you have to talk to the board or your managers about what you're doing. You know, if you gave the same story to your mother, would you be embarrassed or not willing to do it? I mean, that's really what it comes red down face. to. Does your, does your face turn red? Turn red. Yeah, yeah that's another uh, a great way to do it. You know, Seth Godin has a great uh, story about you know, with credit cards, your credit cards know everything that you do, but you know, you're not getting offers like, oh, hey, we noticed, you know, you've been going out to dinner and buying flowers for this other person. You know, would you like this 50% off coupon for the clinic? You know, you, you, <laughs> things like that violate trust. And so, yeah, you know, at least taking the moral high ground at least gives you some kind of compass to go by. But yeah, it's just unbelievable. And I mean, you can talk more to this than I can about how you know, it's just the regulation is so far behind the technology. You know, the technology is just moving at 10,000 miles an hour and everybody's making it up as we go. It's really the Wild West. And so, yeah, you know, as legislation comes up, what happens and how do we deal with it? And it's, yeah, you just kind of have to take your best shot. Um, it's so funny. The example that you just gave about Seth Godin and, and the credit card companies and you know, obviously those credit card issuers, financial institutions, even stricter sets of guidelines for what they can and cannot do um, with their customers' data. And I'm reminded of a really funny story with regards to a friend of mine who is shopping on Amazon, like we all do. Because you know who else knows everything about all of our lives? <laughs> uh, Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos knows everything about everyone. And this friend of mine uh, thought she was uh, potentially pregnant. She was looking up like baby books or something uh, on Amazon, hadn't ordered anything, and then out of nowhere got a delivery of a sample of free diapers and formula uh, to <laughs> okay. her house. Completely flipped out her husband, being like, honey, is there something that you need to talk to me about? And it was literally simply because she... She had been doing some some Googling about pregnancy symptoms and looking on Amazon for books and all of a sudden with no warning and a very awkward conversation with her significant <laughs> other uh, talking about why she was getting packages of diapers in the mail. Yeah, because Target had dealt with that a couple of years ago and it's it's just insane. And it's funny, Google now has in their analysis of this stuff. They actually have a whole category called your money or your life, YMYL pages, that, you know, if you're talking about health or money or medical issues, there's at least some additional standards over there to keep you out of trouble. Because yeah, yeah, nobody wants the mystery diapers. That's just a fight waiting to happen. And it was, and it was <laughs> a, fight, a fight that was waiting to happen and did happen. Um, so with, so for, for an organization who is reliant on data, right, for marketing purposes. So all organizations are reliant on data for every other purpose. But for marketing specifically, there's been a really significant reliance historically on third-party data, correct, to, to fuel an organization's marketing efforts? 
Yeah, especially things like, you know, Facebook ads have been unbelievably cheap when you look at the history of advertising, the ability to target people that are have certain interests or have bought other things. We kind of went through a golden era where as a business, you would be able to get in touch with more people than ever before. And now we're seeing on a bunch of different fronts, the ability for the... Um, you know, the, the advertiser to be able to get personal information either for free or to get the benefit through an advertising platform, those windows are closing rapidly. Not so golden anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not a free, it's not the free ride that it used to be. You know, I mean, it used to be fantastic. Do you see a shift um, in a, a trend shift from the reliance on third-party data to organizations trying to really make it first-party and acquiring it themselves? Like, are, are you noticing organizations attempting to do that? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's really unfortunate that I, this is like an old software joke that, you know, we talk about the, it's only the drug, uh, the drug trade and software that talks about their customers as users. And <laughs> you know, there's a reason for that. And yeah, we see a lot of companies that have just gotten addicted to these cheap ads. And now suddenly the performance is starting to flag. And it's really just a, a matter of, who's got the uh, intestinal fortitude to try something else and to make a press towards more first party data, you know, try to collect as much data as you can so that you don't have to rely on the outside data sources. But, you know, unfortunately, as organizations get bigger and they're more dependent on quarterly, you know, reports to the street, it gets a lot harder to get them off that, uh, that quick fix. Um, but yeah, everything so we've been doing is, is get more data, use some of the dark social channels too. you know, try and create your own communities and your own events and things like that, because yeah, it's not going to get easier anytime soon. No, particularly not with every, you know, I think that there's 27 or 28 states right now who still have privacy legislation, uh, either drafted in proposal form in committee that hasn't maybe been signed into law yet, but it's really just a matter of time before we again have this like additional fragmented patchwork of uh, privacy regulations. Of all states, right, um, Florida's proposed privacy bill just passed out of the House. Like, like lit I think it was actually today. Um, and if Florida's doing it, you, you know that lots of other states are going to follow suit as well. One of our one of our business friendly estates has proposed privacy legislation that's come out of the uh, come out of the Florida House. Yeah, you know that's something I, I did want to. It's worth asking you because the the person to ask on this is, you know, so many of the places that I've been at, um, compliance is really a luxury. You know, most of the companies are fighting for survival. You know, if they actually get to a point where they can worry about compliance, they've they've been a huge yeah. success. And so the the entrepreneur entrepreneurial mindset for that has always been well pick the worst one find the state that has the most stringent you know regulations and as long as you follow that then you can pretty much sleep at night and not worry about it. but is that sound counsel or is that actually just kind of a urban myth it, i mean theoretically sure like least common denominator approach to compliance we can't track 50 different things so we're going to find the most strict state and try to comply to that that only works though if the requirements are similar right and there are some of these new laws that not only have restrictive right aspects to them but they actually have proscriptive aspects to them and if those proscriptive aspects to them are not consistent amongst the states that approach isn't really going to work right if you have to register as a data broker for example in the state of california you may not have to register in florida because 
that law doesn't have that registration requirement. They may have another reporting requirement that, you know, the state of Virginia doesn't have. So there's lots of aspects of these laws that don't perfectly fit that sort of least common denominator model anymore anyway. That used to be very, very sound advice. It's gotten a little bit more nuanced and complicated. You know what would fix it, though? Comprehensive federal legislation. Federal. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, that's, and I, and the irony is, is it would be cheaper to manage and then everyone would be on a level playing field, right? God forbid. <laughs> God forbid we put everyone on the same page. Yeah, well, and every organization having to deal with one set of rules as opposed to 50. And then and we're just talking domestic, too. You've got the whole rest of the world. I mean, because that was another marketing thing. We were just like, well, as long as you meet GDPR and you've got the EU happy, you should be good in the States. But yeah, that's not the case anymore either. No, like state of California is like, no, we would we want our own GDPR-esque. <laughs> um, and then that got, you know, the entire ball rolling. Um, while my clients remain like terribly frustrated with, you know, the patchwork nature of the legislation, I sort of joke and I was like, well, it's good. It's good for me. It's going to help all three of Dara's kids to college. (laughs) Sorry, kids. (laughs) Don't mean, don't mean to bring the kids into the podcast. Uh, but in all seriousness, so putting the compliance side to the, to, you know, off to the side for a moment, um, there is still a way to be compliant. So assuming that you've got all of your compliance, uh, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed and you've got a good system for that and you have your arguments that you can, you know, that you think your mother would buy and that aren't going to turn your face red if you've got to talk to a regulator, there is so much um, insight and excitement around, I guess, what really what you guys are focused on and how to harness the power of the data that you do have and that you can compliantly use to drive sales. Um, so we're going to sort of like move into the more exciting part, like how we get to use all of this data and, you know, services and insight, like what Trust Insights does to actually make money and to grow business. And uh, common question, common complaint rather, that we hear all the time from sales and marketing departments are like, these leads suck and the follow-up sucks and like everything sucks and that's why we're not closing. And there seems to be this like tension between sales and marketing. Um, Why is that? Yeah, that's, you know, a lot of organizations have, as they grow up, they get a greater and greater gap between the marketing and the sales functions. You know, you have a group of people who are responsible with, ultimately, in today's marketing environment, they're building an email list. Like, that's pretty much the number one asset that companies are trying to get is a house email list that can deliver 20 or 30% on a regular basis. But then you have salespeople whose entire job is to actually interact with a single person and try and get, you know, uh, some kind of project together that they can work on. And so there's a huge gap there. You know, a, a marketing department will run some kind of campaign like a webinar or whatever and throw a list of, you know, X number of leads or prospects over to the sales team. And then there's just a a huge variety of results that can come out of that. Everything from the sales, you know, marketing goes back and looks a month later and none of them have been contacted to, you know, on the better end of the spectrum, at least, you know, three to five contacts have been made and there's been some discussions and hopefully some closed business. I mean, if you're actually aligned, you, you've got deals closing. So yeah, this kind of constant battle between sales and marketing is a great point to jump in because, 
if you get your data in order, you can fix that problem for both people, right? You can get marketing to do a better job to get the right audience, not just people who want your free thing this week, but people who actually have a problem that they're looking to solve. And then the leads are just better for sales and you can get more closed deals. And again, the closing of that loop to be able to report back, okay, we spent this, here's how much business it generated. That's the kind of stuff where, you know, most CMOs don't have that. There's a reason why the average CMO tenure is 18 months. And that's because Really I didn't only realize one. it was that short. Is that true? It is. It is brutal. I mean, go look at Netflix. Oh I think they've had three CMOs in the past two years. Um, it's yeah, it's completely brutal. And uh, Duke does an annual CMO survey, and we see every year that about one in three marketing executives are making their decisions based on data. You know, two out of three are faking it as best they can by something that's not you know statistically relevant. So. Um, yeah, that's the the environment that people are trying to survive in. Ouch. So, uh, moving on to another. This is gonna. This question is gonna be a little spicy. So I apologize in advance. Um, you mentioned predictive analytics when you were talking about one of the aspects uh, or functions that Trust Insights uh, can provide uh, to its customers. And I, I gotta ask: Do you think predictive analytics for marketing, like, is actually a crystal ball, or is it is it complete? bullshit. And sorry, Apple, like, I know you're going to flag me for that, but. Yeah, it's, you know, it runs the whole gamut. I mean, there are vendors making promises like out there. <laughs> yeah, no, you, if you, you know, are not watching your step, you will step in it. There's no doubt about that. Um, and then hopefully on the other end of the spectrum, yeah, if you do have three to five years of data and there haven't been any, well, the, we say three to five because that basically allows you to back test it. You know, you can take last year's data, test it against the two years before that, and you can see if the results are statistically significant. And so, you know, if they are, then you can look a year ahead and say, hey, this is when we think things are going to be, you know, we think these months are going to be the big ones when people are buying. And a, a big part for us is not just when does the business come in, but which topics or problems come up at what times of year. And so to be able to know that, um, okay, we know that most marketing events happen in Q3. So if you're going to be advertising marketing events or certain technologies, you want to be doing it you know, July through August um, so that you've got the impressions and you're already starting to talk to some people as October, November, December come on. And, and being able to stay ahead and in front of what customers want to do, right? That's the ultimate promise of AI, really. Yeah. That's Amazon's whole thing to be able to send me a coupon for 200 bucks for the thing that I've been considering buying already. Um, I mean, you know. so you mentioned sort of that three to five year period of time as as the right time frame for, for back testing and being able to predict a year out. I have to imagine that COVID and like, you know, a global pandemic generally just really screws that up. Yeah, that's you know so many things have gone out the window, especially on the B2B side for us. You know, for consumers, it's a mess for consumers too, but just to give you a great example of how it's messed up for us is that in B2B there used to be a very predictable cycle of Monday through Friday stuff happened and Saturday through Sunday you don't even have to show up. You know, you like you look at your web analytics every weekend and they just drop to zero, you know, Sunday, Monday. Um, and there's some variance to that, but that that was the basic rule. And what we found during COVID is that web browsing behavior, now it's the weekend all the time. Like there's really no, there's not all this action of, 
um, people kind of doing their fun projects on Friday and people doing boring reporting on Monday, like all that's kind of gone out the window and now it's a, it's a free for all. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, there was some data we could derive from that as everyone was home, but now as we're in this transition period again, yeah, we're still kind of stuck. It's going to take a couple years for the data to shake out to be able to tell us anything. Interesting. Um, okay. So that's, but predictive, I mean, even with, even with COVID, right? The fact that you could just share with me the data points that you shared about the, the changes that you guys have observed, that wouldn't be possible without the power of the machine learning and AI that you guys utilize, right? Like we wouldn't even know that right now without, without technology, like what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. It's, that's, um, you know, it's funny, Web3 kind of gets all the buzz right now and people talking about what's going on with that. But we are really at this third level of computational power, too, because, you know, at the beginning of the Internet, only companies could have websites and publish stuff. And then mm -hmm. and we're still in alignment on Web2 as far as that was the publishing tools were actually given to the general public. You know, now my right. aunts and uncles who know nothing about anything technology can put their wonderful opinions out there for the rest of the world to share. Um, but this third wave now is, yeah, you know, 15 years ago, only Walmart had the tech budget and talent to be able to churn through seven gig of purchasing data to be able to figure out how much toothpaste was going to sell next month. Well, now, you know, we have data sets that we throw in to Amazon's cloud and it costs us 35 cents a month to to grind through this data and have their servers churn through the stuff. So yeah, it's kind of, if you're not a tech nerd, you, you may have not noticed that this has happened, but for everybody that does have, you know, projects where it used to have their machine sit grinding for three days straight, now you can get this stuff done in the cloud for pennies. And so it's, it, yeah, it's really changed the game. So, um, you sort of like hinted at the evolution and you know the all the trending on web 3 and i will i will admit that tech on reg is guilty of that as well we've had a bunch of episodes about web web 3 and you know the impact on the control of user data and digital identity but we're presently still living in the web 2 right universe we haven't quite transitioned yet there's development happening there's money being invested but the shift hasn't happened. So when we're talking about Web 2 and the shift to uh, having user-created data and think about, like for listeners, think about stuff like Wikipedia and Yelp and social media websites and all of this content that we are putting out, this podcast included, by the way, that we are putting out on the web. Talk to me, John, about the world of Web3 and all of this unstructured free content that, you know, we're all putting into the public domain, how does that play into data collection for marketing purposes, liability? I'm going to use a dirty word like scraping. What are your yeah, thoughts there's, on that? I don't know. There's a lot going on this front. And unfortunately, um, I have lived having lived through numerous tech cycles you you see that yeah. web3 is just the classic first thing of web3 is what the vendors want you know it's not what consumers are going to end up buying and what it's going to end up looking like but this is what's being put forward and it's basically just like artificial intelligence it's a bunch of very specific things just kind of all bundled in this ball and thrown out to the world like the fact that you've got blockchain and nfts in the same bundle 
it, the, the, that's two, you know, that's beanie babies and banking. Like that's two totally different things that they ride together most of the time. But it's, you know, it, it's a very I don't know thing. if I agree with you on that, but that's the subject of a different show. So. Yeah, there's a lot more going on. But to get to scrape, you know, scraping, yeah, is there's a lot of stuff that goes on with scraping. And yeah, a lot of the stuff to the letter is against the agreements of the vendors that they're working with. Um, you know, and all this stuff is vendor to vendor fighting because we don't, again, back to having a federal, you know, you're not breaking federal laws when you're doing this, but you are opening yourself to all kinds of civil litigation or whatever. And yeah, most of the time, a blind eye gets turned to that kind of stuff. You know, if we have somebody who's able to get some data from somewhere and they're able to get some actionable insight out of it. You know, they're kind of a fool not to take the insight unless they're doing something that, again, doesn't pass the red face test. Um, oh, I you know, mean, we've I, come full circle to ethics, right? Like this has come full circle right back to ethics because how can we start debating, you know, the ethics of AI and its application if we're also sort of like willy-nillying, violating, you know, companies terms of use and user agreements and, you know, and we're doing it like so many organizations are doing it quite fr flagrantly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and then there's the whole thing of, especially on the B2C side of, you know, that you read these statements where the average consumer would have to spend six years straight reading to, you know, cover all the user agreements that they've been flashed over the past year and a half. Um, but yeah, it's, we are definitely, we're living through Wild West here. You know, this is a, an amazing time in human history and there's a lot of stuff going on that, yeah, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to look back on this time and it's just going to seem like, you know, what a bunch of insanity all that was. But, uh, you know, for us, it's just a normal Tuesday. I mean, I think we can all acknowledge that it's, that it's you know, still pretty insane. I, I, I get into, con for years, I've been sort of in, in debates with, uh, you know, business development folks and my my primary focus is, you know, if you're acquiring data, making sure you dot your I's and cross and T's on your agreements, that you're not violating any terms and conditions, that you're doing so in compliance with, you know, state and federal law, that you're obtaining consents where you're allowed to obtain consents, that your disclosures are fulsome and, and educational and, and meaningful such that, you know, when you are getting them, you, you're not going to find yourself in hot water with the FTC because you, you were lying to people about what you were doing with the data. But on the flip side is, is you, you know, we also know that regulation by disclosure doesn't work, right? Like it's not terribly effective. And the other part of it, like the joke of it all sometimes is, is like, yep, people, you know, scream and shout and stomp their feet about their rights to privacy and they would trade it all for a Pizza Hut coupon, right? Like, yeah, isn't, <laughs> that is entirely, you know, it's people are crazy about privacy yet they have a cell phone, they have a Visa card, they... They have a credit card. They have, um, you know, and yeah, they're they're willing to. I, I know today I would give up all my info if I could have my retina scan to just walk on a plane without having to do anything. You know, I'd like, I don't care about that. Oh, yeah. oh it, clear, clear does that for you, John. That, that's, <laughs> they've that's, been selling, they've been selling it to me in the line. Yeah, they're, they're trying to get me to take it. It's for free for the first flight too. And I just don't believe it when I'm going through security. Um, I am, to uh, full disclosure, I am a total clear customer. I figure the federal government already has all of my biometrics anyway. So they like struck a deal with TSA and I save myself at least 15 minutes every time I'm at O'Hare. So scan away. Y'all know every Jeff, Jeff Bezos knows, uh, you know, knows everything about me. Google knows everything <laughs> about me. Chase, JP Morgan Chase knows everything about me. So, you know, is it, 
I might as well get to my flight uh, a little bit easier. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I got my TSA check like three months before COVID lockdown. So I'd finally, back in July, I had my first actual real experience. You know, it sat around unused for a year. And yeah, it definitely was changing. It's, it's glorious. And then like clear... This is like not a plug for Clear. Like Clear's not paying me to say this. I am just sharing like a very positive user experience that I have. And I totally pay for the subscription and it's worth every penny. Um, but 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 I digress. But the the point being is that yes, we as in, and I suppose that that is sort of like the philosophical debate. You and I are gonna make the choice about when we divulge our information and what our trade-offs are willing to be. And I suppose, right? Consciously, I know that I'm giving biometric data to clear in exchange for this other service that is being provided to me. And I'm willing to do that for the convenience of walking in and out of the airport with less hassle. Right? Yeah, it's true. But it's interesting. There's this kind of this new segment that we've been watching where people are making that trade just for the right to be on social media. Like there's a lot of folks who don't you know, agree to sharing of their data. But if you grab their social profiles and look at publicly available data by looking at who their friends are and the kinds of things that they like, you can easily create a profile of the types of things that they're probably buying or not buying and where they're going and not going. So yeah, that's a, there's a lot of stuff going on on that front. And, and again, it's, you know, if you're going to share geo-encoded photos from your phone of your children, like maybe you need to re-examine your own privacy position before you start chasing things down clean it up you gotta clean you gotta we all have to right we all have to clean up our own data too um i had an interesting experience just with uh when i started the podcast and i was publishing uh, a lot on social and not even so much on facebook instagram but linkedin right like linkedin's my primary place where i'm doing my social interaction because that's where you know that's where professionals go to interact with one another and i i never historically got LinkedIn spam, right? The same way you do getting, you know, sponsored ads and, and spam on some of these other sites. And recently, um, it has just been every time I post like a link to a new episode or, you know, change something a about a poster, I tag my podcast, I get these bots and they're very obviously bots who, uh, who are direct messaging me on LinkedIn offering me podcast promotion services and offering me data analytics about my podcast. And I was like, you don't have data analytics about my podcast. Um, but I, I think that there's some scraping, right? There's certainly some scraping going on because there's those aren't sponsored, right? Those are not LinkedIn sanctioned activities. So you flag it and you spam it. But I think that the social media sites, as much of a responsibility as they have, I think they're in a really difficult like really, really difficult position in terms of trying to separate the the real from the fake, from, you know, from the crap, from the harassment and, you know, and where do, where do you draw the line? It's certainly, it's an interesting debate to have. Oh, yeah. So, and, you know, disclosure up front too, Marketing Over Coffee is sponsored by LinkedIn, the number one display advertising network in the U.S. Um, but yeah, it's it's incredible. You I know, these also have a great affinity for LinkedIn. My husband is an employee there, so sorry, honey. I did like not me. I like didn't mean to. <laughs> uh, I've 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 shared my I've shared my concerns with him as well. He was like complain the lodge a complaint there, and I was like, all right, babe, 
<laughs> yeah, and it's but it's amazing. There's a lot of things going on. And it, yeah, and you make a great point though. Like the first thing is these companies never set up to replace journalism and have geopolitical no, impact. They like they just wanted to have pictures of people up there and dancing cats. And you know now suddenly they've been thrown into billions of dollars and global impact. So yeah, they're doing the best they can with what they want and still trying to meet the quarterly demands of Wall Street, which is two evil masters really. Um, but yeah, there, there's so much going on on that front as far as, like you said, scraping and bots and um, and trying to you know look for things like fake news. There's really, unfortunately, every news you know thing that happens is a black swan event. There's no data about it that you can analyze to see what's going forward. And so the best they can do is have user generate you know user feedback, you know people flagging stuff. But there's still kind of no way to defeat that. What happens in the first two hours when stuff gets spread around and everybody just believes it? Um, it's to it's totally true. And just so that LinkedIn does not feel like we're picking on it, I would say out of all of the social sites available, and this will make your sponsor happy and hopefully my husband happy because like, honey, I really didn't mean to poop on your company. Um, <laughs> out of all of the social sites, I think that's probably the the least fertile ground for the types of situations like that we're talking about. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we all know that they're a big hot mess uh, with, regards to, with regards to that stuff. Um, and I've had to testify before Congress, uh, you know, to, to explain some of their behaviors in that regard. Um, but all of that being said, these are all areas where Trust Insights as a whole is leveraging technology to help customers make better and more informed and ultimately more profitable decisions with regards to their BD and marketing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, so many marketers spend a huge pile of money and at the end of the year aren't even sure what was working or not working. And so to be able to come in and say, hey, these are the programs that deliver for us. This is the kind of stuff we want to do for the next six months. That's there's no substitute for that kind of data. So we're sort of nearing the end of our time. Uh, any sort of final thoughts or message you want to send listeners before we wrap up? Uh, you know, definitely feel free to check me out over at Marketing Over Coffee. If you're into marketing or tech stuff, we're always talking about that over there. There's a greatest hits page. You can listen to us talking with Seth Godin or Simon Sinek or a bunch of other folks. Um, but yeah, and I'm on Twitter, John J. Wall. Feel free to ping me up over there. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Always glad to talk about any of this stuff. Awesome. Well, John, thank you so much. It was a fantastic conversation. Um, interested to see how, you know, a few hopefully years between us and COVID have, you know, like impacted uh, some of the information and trends that you guys are seeing. Um, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. I appreciate it. Yeah. Happy to come back anytime. All right, everyone. Until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>